to think of it. Back in the days when I was traveling through the country of Israel, and not only that I was deeply impressed by how energetic and how vibrant the energy from the younger generations, and I could tell younger generations in Israel, they were prospering and they were growing not only intellectually, but also again spiritually. But somehow when we got to the conversation between the countries of Israel and Palestine, it got so quiet. Because number one, it's so complicated. And number two, it seems that no one actually has a definite answer how to solve this almost improbable crisis at this moment. Of course, looking ahead, we're in the year of 2022, and this matter is still not going away. So that's why today I am so excited to talk to one expert, and her name is Dr. Annette Wolf, and she's the co-author of the book entitled The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestine Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace. And meanwhile, she's a leading thinker on matters of foreign policy, economics, education. She was a member of the Israeli parliament from 2010 to 2013, where she served as a chair of the education committee and member of the influential foreign affairs and defense committee. So, Dr. Wolf, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Wolf, again, let's get to the question right away. As I mentioned in the intro, did I say it right? It seems as U.S. for decades has been very interested in helping those two nations, Israel and Palestine. But somehow, the more we try it, it, it gets worse. So in other words, this is the matter that it can never go away, but you can't say U.S. is not trying, but somehow the solution is just getting more disappointing than ever. Dr. Wolf, why? So uh, one of the things to understand in foreign policy, especially in the West, is I think we have a vast uh, gap between the idea of doing good and the idea of feeling good. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of foreign policy is motivated by the desire to feel good. Mm. And certain things feel good. Dialogue, negotiations, uh, mutual understanding, help, uh, financial assistance. Uh, but sometimes these things, even though they feel good to those who do them, they don't do good. And sometimes doing good requires doing unpleasant things uh, that certain policymakers do not want to do. And what are some of these unpleasant things that need to happen in order to end the conflict? Mm. To fundamentally understand what the conflict is about, it's actually remarkably simple. It's not complicated. The conflict is between the Jewish desire to have a state in the region, in any borders, and between the Arab and especially Palestinian rejection uh, of that Jewish desire in any borders. Uh, this was actually well phrased by a British foreign minister, Ernst Bevan, after uh, World War II. Uh, he basically defined the conflict as follows. He says, in the land, the Jews want a state 
and the Arabs wanted the Jews not to have a state. Mm. It's important to understand this because this is not like two peoples or two nations fighting over borders. And the question is, okay, uh, you know, should we move the border from here to there? This is basically one nation saying, we want to govern ourselves in this land. We'll take even a part of it. And it, the other people in the land saying, absolutely not. They get nothing. Mm. Uh, this is and this is why the conflict is so difficult to resolve because these are by definition mutually exclusive goals mm. and even just the sentence that i said now nobody likes to hear that you want to hear about zone of mutual agreement and negotiations that's right you don't want someone to come to say these are mutually exclusive goals which by the way means that the conflict can only end when one side basically gives up on trying to achieve its goal. Mm. Uh, and this is the reason the conflict has lasted for more than a century, because for over a century, we're stuck in what I call this uh, battle of mutual exhaustion. Each side is trying to get the other side or to exhaust the other side into giving up on their goal. Uh, the Arabs are trying to exhaust the Jews by wars and terrorism mm. and international condemnations to give up on their desire to have a state. And the Jews are trying to exhaust the Arabs, mostly by standing firm, uh, to give up on their desire to throw us out or to prevent us from having a state, basically to get them to finally just let us be. Mm. Um, now, when you look at outside actors like the United States, when they try to bring the sides to negotiate, but fundamentally we still have two mutually exclusive goals, this is going to explode again and again and again because there's nothing to agree on. Mm. So the way to actually get to an agreement is to get the Arab side, the Palestinians, to give up on their desire that Israel will no longer exist and mm. that the Jews will not govern themselves. Now, that's not a pleasant message because it basically, it's a message of defeat. Mm. And nobody likes to talk about it, right? I talked about dialogue, mutual understanding. Nobody likes to talk about victory and defeat anymore, right? That was good for World War II and we don't talk about it anymore. Mm. But... If the goal of the Palestinian Arabs and for a very long while of the entire Arab world, that the Jews will not have a state in any part of the land. And to that end, they have gone to multiple wars and terrorism and international condemnations. It is not until they accept defeat in that goal mm. that we can move on. Hmm. Only when they say, look, we understand that the Jewish people have the right to govern themselves, what we call the right to self-determination. And now that we accept this right, we want to discuss border arrangements. Hmm. That is going to be one of the easiest and fastest negotiations when we get to that point. What's taking so long is that mutual exhaustion is right now no one's willing to give up. The Jews don't want to give up on their right to self-determination. That's right. And the Palestinian Arabs don't want to give up on their goal that the Jews no longer govern themselves. So we're stuck. Dr. Wolf, you know, if we can trace back 
from this history and not too long and we know that during a previously under trump administration one of the presidential activities that president trump did which i believe we could say shocked the entire world is to acknowledge that jerusalem you know was the capital official capital of israel and given the fact that moved the american embassy from tel aviv to jerusalem and i think that was completely surprised to the international community and of course domestically and internationally speaking for christians for evangelical community that was such a milestone and that was something that this evangelical community had been looking forward to or been praying for decades of course by doing that that immediately caused the firestorm on the other side so dr wolf coming to you is from your perspective, that would would you think that President Trump did something good during his presidency, despite all the negativity? And and why would you think it's so terrifying or even scary for the other side? So when it comes to his policy in the Middle East, uh, President Trump pretty much got it perfectly right, mm. uh, and I think as a result, he also reaped what he sowed in the form of the Abraham Accords, the fact that this was relatively very quiet time uh, in the Middle East, precisely because he was willing to break with decades of Western orthodoxy about how to solve the conflict and uh you know who you need to uh to coddle uh he understood very clearly that uh you know the palestinians and the arab world for so long have been indulged and this is why we use the word in the uh in the name of our book the the palestinians and the arabs were indulged in their rejectionism they kept on saying no 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 to israel and the west was like let's talk some more mm. let's talk some more rather than saying if this is going to be no then we're just moving on you know we're not going to wait for you forever and i think that was a very powerful message that came from the trump administration uh in the middle east which is we're moving on That's we are right. not letting you veto this situation forever one of the ways of moving on was taking the very obvious uh decision of finally acknowledging that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And he also did it wisely, which is he said, this doesn't mean that Jerusalem's current municipal boundaries, which personally I think are horrendous. I grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem needs to be a much smaller city. But he said that the current municipal uh, boundaries of Jerusalem uh, can be negotiated. Uh, so he said, I'm not acknowledging every square meter of uh Jerusalem's current municipal boundaries, but Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Mm. Um, and what they found, found out that, uh, yes, some people muttered, uh, and on the day there were some demonstrations, but not about the, uh, the capital, more about the desire to have no Jewish state, what were called the marches of return in Gaza. But at the end of the day, all the intelligence communities and so-called experts who said the Middle East is going to, you know, break out in a great storm of fire. No, nothing happened. 
and people moved on. Hmm. Dr. Wolf, I want to ask you if you can describe again what motivated you and to co-author this book because you know again at the beginning when I was to look at the title of the book and you know how Western indulgence of the Palestinian dream has completely deep you know debacled the path to peace and we know that today from this foreign policy side the word peace is so critical and of course it's almost impossible to achieve given this condition but now how feasible or how realistic we are speaking that to maintain this peace at this moment and if if we can do that what is the alternative at least we could do to minimize the threat between those two countries so um I call myself a long-term optimist. I think, and we look at the history, uh, we've seen people change and ch change their goals and nations accept uh, the changing reality. So I think if the West were finally ready to stop indulging the Palestinians and to tell them your goal since the first half of the 20th century of no Jewish state in any borders whatsoever has not been achieved and will not be achieved. You've been defeated in that war and you need to move on. We're happy to support you if you want to live next to Israel, but we're not going to support you if your goal remains to be instead of mm. Israel, which is the present situation. Um, I think if the West persisted in that and continued with for, with the Abraham Accords and the agreements with the Arab nations, basically signaling to the Palestinians, you no longer have the world's backing and not even the Arab world's backing to keep saying no, 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 you might begin to see over time, I'm not saying it will happen tomorrow morning, but in the course of a generation, groups and leaders who will say perhaps it's time to say yes mm. so i do believe that's possible but we're not going to get there by closing our eyes we're not going to get there by continuing to indulge the palestinians in their worldview that israel is an illegitimate country that should not exist it would be great if, as you said, this were a conflict between two countries, right. like Palestine and Israel. The problem is that Palestinians like to think of Palestine as a country when it's useful against Israel, such mm. as in UN condemnations. Right. But they hate to think of themselves as a country when it means assuming proper responsibility mm. for historic events and for the present. So if Palestine were a country, it would make no sense for 2.2 million people who live in Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza to keep calling themselves refugees from Palestine, which is what they call themselves now, waiting that day when finally Israel disappears and they can take it all. So they play with this notion of being a country and not being a country, so-called Schrodinger's Palestine, only when it's useful against Israel. Hmm. Dr. Wolf, we know the year of 2022, it's so critical for America, especially for the Democrats. You know, not only they're facing this midterm election, but, you know, I hate to be this uh, naysayer, but foreign policy under this current administration has not been 
one of the priorities on the table, or it may not be even that matter at this moment, given this domestic mess. Now, from your perspective, compared with the previous uh, administration, why do you think right now, under the administration of Joe Biden, in terms of dealing with or finding this mutual peace or this mutual harmony for the Middle Eastern countries has not taken place? Why do you think it's so uh, the delay for that? I was wondering about that myself, because you had an administration that literally had, uh, you know, it was to pick up from the floor. Right. Arab countries who have become exhausted from the conflict, who understand that opposing Israel was just a waste of resources and time, and that literally nothing good came to the Arab world for making hatred of Israel and the desire to eliminate it the centerpiece of their ideology. I mean, you cannot think of one good thing that came to the Arab world from devoting so many resources to that purpose. So you finally have Arab countries who are saying enough is enough. We want to build a successful, prosperous future for the Middle East and normalizing relations with Israel is part of it. Uh, and this started especially under President Trump. I don't know if it's this juvenile idea that, you know, if Trump did it, then we're not going to do it. Or, But it took a really long time for the Biden administration to finally embrace the Abraham Accords. Mm. And even now, when they finally embrace them, they're not really putting their thumb on the scale in the same way that the Trump administration did in order to make it happen. But I will say this. It's better for the Middle East if they don't intervene than if they intervene badly. So... It's great if they can do the right thing, but if they can't do the right thing, at least if they do nothing, that's okay too. Dr. Wolf, we know that the year of 2020 that shook the entire world, you know, given the fact that not only that the pandemic took place, but also we are looking at how this entire world lived under the word globalization. And of course, today, when we talk about globalization, you're the expert on economic study. Now, from your perspective, how would you describe this current economic impact or this economic situation in Israel, especially when it's building these ties or trying to maintain these close ties with the Western Hemisphere? Well, one of the things that, I mean, Israel, like everyone else, has uh, noticed that... Uh, not only is our world getting smaller and closer and tighter knit together, uh, it has more and more diverse players. It's not the 90s now where after the fall of the Soviet Union, America mm. was basically global cop and hyperpower. Uh, we're looking at other major countries. And one of the things that Israel did well uh, in the last, I think, decade, even two, is to begin to diversify its foreign policy. America remains the most important ally, of course, but you've seen Israel in recent years reach out to India, to mm. China, to Africa, to Latin America. So uh, you're beginning to, I mean, we're a small country at the end of the day, but uh, we are reaching out we are to a wide uh, range of countries and really to our region. Mm. Uh, for many years, for many decades, really, 
Israel was basically an island. Mm. It's why we love our airport so much, because we can't pick <laughs> up the car and go anywhere. Um, all the countries around us basically uh, kind of shunned us for many decades. Um, so Israel behaved like an island mm. and much of its economic policy, the free, free trade area with Europe, the close ties with the U.S. were that of an island. You know, most countries, if you look at their economic trade, they trade with their neighbors. Right. Their neighbors are first their major trading partners and then everybody else. Right. Israel did not trade with its neighbors because its neighbors would not trade with it. Right. So our trading uh, uh, kind of patterns were as if we were in an island between Europe and the U.S., now, now we're like an island between Europe, the U.S., and China, so we're kind of back physically where we belong. But for the first time, you're seeing rising trade with Gulf countries, with Arab countries. Um, the more of that that's going to happen, that's, there's only good in it. It's so interesting that, Dr. Wolf, you mentioned about the country of China. And we know that this week or this month, it seems so busy for the country of China, not only this ongoing Winter Olympics, but also under this big or uh, grand project it's called a One Belt, One Road Initiative. And again, uh, based on our latest report, and the country of Argentina just joined this project. So which, you know, meant a great deal, not only to China, but also to internationally. Dr. Wolf, I want you to uh, help us to understand the business or from this economic perspective, how significant for Israel to reach out to China or how significant to see that China, which crossed the continent to build this economic partners uh, with Israel, because given this condition for Chinese people, we've heard this country, you know, we uh, probably would travel to this region, you know, uh, as a tourist. But right now, looking at the moment or even looking ahead, it's almost impossible to think about this business opportunities or this economic reciprocal relationship between Israel and China. Can you help us to understand a little bit? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, like in many other places in the last decade, especially, China has become more and more involved economically in Israel and ports and infrastructure and investments. And this has been something that Israel was very keen on. As I mm. said, we've been pursuing uh, for over a decade a policy of expanding economic and diplomatic ties with more and more countries, closer ties with more countries. Um, and China is very important to Israel. Uh, I think the only thing that's uh, that's becoming a problem, and I would say it's unfortunate, is you're beginning to see Americans uh, telling Israel that it should limit mm. uh, its relationship uh, with China, which I think is unfortunate and unnecessary. Mm. Uh, and I hope that Israel will find a way to balance all its relations for its benefits. Um so that's that's the one thing I've I've seen recently, and I'm not too happy about that part. Hmm. Dr. Wolf, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about the younger generations. And we know that, again, across the continent, younger generations today, not only they're changing political, but also social and cultural agendas. 
you know, from protesting towards the government and also voice their opposition towards foreign policy, etc. Now, from your years of um, experience in foreign policy and education, etc., how active are the younger generations today in Israel in terms of participating political and social movements? And by the results, how effective is it? So in Israel, uh, the young generation actually has quite a few uh, successes to its name in the last uh, more than a decade, which is not what you typically think about. Uh, I mean, when you talk to pollsters in America, they will all tell you that the young generation might protest, but the older generation votes. Mm. Uh, but in Israel, for example, you had uh, about a decade ago, a very big economic protest movement together uh interestingly with the protest movements of the arab spring it happened about the same time and it was quite effective in uh promoting certain reforms in israel uh in our economic structure opening up uh, certain sectors um we had the younger generation very involved in uh, the last uh political uh, uh rounds um mostly to try to replace the government and ultimately they succeeded. So by and large, uh, the young generation in Israel has been, they've been going out to the streets. It's also easier here, you know, the weather's nice, the country's small, right. so protesting <laughs> is always uh, somewhat easier. But uh, they've been protesting and for a long time and have been quite effective in achieving some of their goals. And Israel in general, I'm sure uh, people know that, is a very political, involved society. Mm. Um, so. Well, now, just along with that said, do you think today the younger generations in Israel, and of course not, I don't mean just ask you that question, and I asked the question to um, all the guests on the show, is we tend to see the word democracy, where we, we tend to retranslate or re-understand the word of democracy in the year 2022. Now, for the younger generations or for the people in Israel, do you think that the word democracy or the translation, the meaning of democracy, has always been the same as what we think from this Western culture? Or today, for the people in Israel, maybe the word democracy or the word freedom can be interpreted in a new way. So democracy is always uh, hotly debated, but that's in the nature of Israel. I mean, Israel is amazingly, very few people are aware of it, but Israel is one of the world's oldest continuous democracies, which seems weird. We think of Israel as a young country, but when you understand that most countries were established after Israel. About two-thirds of the world countries were established after Israel. Uh, you know, the entire Eastern uh, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe were not uh, democratic nations. Africa, Latin America. So Israel is actually one of the world's oldest continuous democracy and a very boisterous one. And in many ways, you could argue that the culture of argumentation even precedes Israeli democracy into our pre-state Congress and to the Jewish culture in general, which is a built-in culture of argumentation. Mm. So um, 
there's a lot of arguments about what democracy is and what it constitutes. And in Israel, everyone likes to proclaim literally every single day that this is the end of democracy. No matter what anyone says or does, this is the end of democracy. But uh, in practice, we're actually one of the oldest uh, democracies. In a very, and I think it, more than anything, it's because of this uh, inherent culture of argumentation. Mm. Dr. Wolf, I want to end our conversation with the last question going back to your book. Again, I know your book is targeted not only for the people, you know, say in America, but also internationally. So let's just say after a reader or after anyone finished reading your book, you know, how Western indulgence of the Palestinian dream has obstructed the path to peace, what would you like or what are you hoping that the reader should understand one significant matter from reading your book? Uh, I would like the reader to understand what the conflict is about and has always been about the Arab and Palestinian rejection of the equal Jewish right to self-determination. And I would like them to understand how, especially Western indulgence, mostly through funding, but also diplomatically, how indulging Palestinian rejectionism has merely fueled the conflict. Mm. And I would like people to understand that they might feel good about giving money, but we here pay the price for it in blood for their feeling good. Mm. So I would say stop pouring fuel on the fire. This Mm. is what this indulgence of Palestinian rejectionism does. It fuels the conflict, and then there's another generation of people who pay the price here. Mm. So I would like them to tell their governments, stop pouring fuel on the fire. Well, and I hope that more readers can understand the point and really appreciate the critical and important matters embedded in this book. 